You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are back again in the studio. I say back again. I mean, we just took a couple minutes break, but for you, it's been a week. So just roll with it, right? There you go. Yeah, it, we're time travelers. That's what it is. Yeah. So we are. We just left Saul mm-hmm. uh, after being told he's going to die. Right. And eating a meal. So. I mean, I guess if you're going to die, eating a meal would be appropriate. Yeah. We'd Fatted be- calf, some good beef. A bad Last Supper there. Yeah, I mean nothing like a a, a meal for the condemned. I mean we still do that today. When you yeah. think about it, I hadn't really. <laughs> Fair enough. Wasn't yeah. putting it in those terms, but this is why uh, talking about all this stuff is always so important because when you talk to somebody else, a lot of times what they say can trigger a different way of thinking about it. And you and I were talking last night how just going through this has actually helped us retain more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah and, and you really, I mean, we, we, we've been having this discussion for over two years now, basically, about <laughs> these Bible stories and how the Old Testament all ties back onto itself. Mm-hmm. And it really has been really interesting because it's like the, the perspective I've been able to get out of this has been just mind-blowing. And when you couple that with the other people that I've been listening to, with listening to Heiser, and who is the other guy that I like? Uh um Mackey, Tim Mackey. Mm-hmm. Um Bible it, project there for the Bible a lot of project guy. Yeah. It, the Exploring My Strange Bible podcast is really good if you haven't listened to it. I I will plug that every chance <laughs> I get. It's uh it's not ongoing, but everything's still there. Um and he, he put those up because people were asking him about, well, you did a sermon so many years ago on such and such. Can you mm-hmm. can you find that and instead of just continuing to uh, upload them and send them out to people. He just decided to put them on the podcast. He goes, well, it's it's on the podcast somewhere. Is now <laughs> it's kind of a time saver for him. Well, I mean, it's cool to think that you can, you know, somebody has built that kind of, you know, basis of knowledge that I can just share. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's really cool too that we have the technology that you know, with what we're doing and other people who are podcasting or doing YouTube, that just sharing this knowledge and getting it out there, and mm-hmm. you know, there. It wasn't that long ago that being able to to get this information out would have been really time and cost prohibitive. Oh yeah, and... the the way we're doing podcasts right now, yeah, just ten years ago would have been just mm-hmm. incredible. I mean, I, so I, I I really am grateful for the platform. I mean, it's, well, it makes it's me feel <laughs> it makes me feel like all the money I invested in seminary wasn't wasted. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we get to help some people out. Yeah, yeah, and it really is. That's one of the highlights of doing this. Is whenever I get that message from someone who said, "Hey, I listened to this episode, and I hadn't thought of it this way, and it helped me process this thing that's going on mm-hmm. in my life, mm-hmm. or answered this question." I, that that really is the best. And, you know, a lot of times people feel kind of hesitant to reach out to podcasters or what have you because they feel like they're imposing. I, I don't want anyone who listens to us to ever feel that way. Right. We love hearing from y'all. We love the the, the Facebook messages, the uh, the comments on the main page, whatever. It, it really is an encouragement. And it, it's it's just 
it's nice because so often it feels like uh, we're just you and I here in a little studio having a conversation and mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. that really reminds us no this is going out into the world and yeah yeah and and I I love the fact that like you said you 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 feel like your seminary degree doesn't go to waste I feel like <laughs> some of my talents are actually getting put to use to something that's yeah. worthwhile and I really do want this to be a good resource, a good jumping off point for people to to take the research even farther. Yes, and uh, hopefully help you out with your with your studies. So yes. That being said, <laughs> um, let's get into the studies. Yeah. Okay. So we we finally did leave um, Saul behind. Uh, we've got done with chapter twenty eight. We're jumping into chapter twenty nine this week, but we're going to be making a lot of back trails to chapter twenty eight. Surprisingly enough. Uh, because they are connected. Chapter 28 and chapter 29 are very closely tied toge- together. Okay. Um, you, and, mean, you mean the Bible goes together with itself? It, it does. And Okay, so and I also am going to point out, this is something I did not find in a commentary. This is my work, and I'm saying that so you can take that for what it's worth. Sure. And so but I think you're going to see what I'm seeing as we walk through this, that the themes uh, by which a, these are connected, or the theme that by which they are connected is rejection. Okay. Both chapters revolve on this. Saul's been rejected by God, and he's been welcomed by the, the woman at Endor, the, the witch or the medium. He was nourished, strengthened, and guided by her. And in this chapter, David's going to be rejected by the Philistines. Oh, yeah. Okay, I I see where you're going there. Yeah, yeah, and we've got some really good links. So I'm not going to read a lot of this chapter because there's lengthy passages, so we're going to kind of summarize. So if you want to, you know, pause the podcast, stop and actually read or grab your Bible so you can keep up with us, that would be a good thing to do. Um, So we're going to kind of, uh, we're going to plow through this one pretty much is what I'm saying. <laughs> but it'll be a nice change of pace. Yeah. Yeah. After <laughs> last week, I mean, it felt like we, we kind of, uh, or last three weeks, we kind of got stuck in chapter 28. So in verse one, we're told that uh, the Philistines are gathered at Aphek. This is about 40 miles north of Gath, and it's about 40 mi- miles short of Shunem, which was where Saul had been whenever he panicked over the fact the Philistines were gathering to attack. And so we're establishing that our timeline with these events here in 29 are a little bit before Saul goes to see the woman at Endor. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is happening, like I said, either shortly before he leaves to go see her or about the same time. So the, the Israelites at this point, they haven't joined forces with the Philistines. Uh, they're camped actually in the Valley of Jezreel, which remember we had a whole discussion whether or not, where did this witch live? Was she in the northern part of Jezreel or was she in the southern part of Jezreel? Right. We, we don't know. Uh, but this is the same place that Gideon camped whenever he was um, testing the men before he attacked the Midians. So okay. this, is, this is a place where a lot of battles are, it, are staged. Well, it seems to me like, the, um, from what I can tell, based on the descriptions of the geography is it's just, it's just kind of a natural border that constantly mm-hmm. gets contested. Pretty much, pretty much. And, and that's the thing when you live in a, a situation like this, where you don't have, you know, airplanes and tanks and the kind of uh, weapons of war that we're used to, 
the the battle is really going to be dictated by the geography mm-hmm. more so than what we would think of it today. And you, they didn't even have rifles back then, so you couldn't sit on top of a hill and shoot down at an enemy below or you know snipe right. at somebody. You you're going to have to find a place where your armies can actually fight. So the Philistines were told in verse two are marching by hundreds and by thousands. I mean, so this is it's an orderly progression. It's orderly march. This is a very disciplined, it's an effective army. They're, they're known for, for their skill in battle and, and for operating as a unit. Mm-hmm. They, they are not, uh, you know, they aren't some ragtag group of farmers thrown together, you know, protecting their land. This is an army that's been trained to, to devastate their enemy. But compare this to the army that David's bringing. David's bringing 600 men who were the, the bottom rung of the societal ladder. They are the people who have been misfits. They're outcasts. They don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. Remember we talked back in, um, in the story of uh, Nabal and Abigail that one of the ways to look at them and one of the words that was applied to them was terrorist, pretty much. Right. So. You know, you've got this highly disciplined army, and they're getting ready to go out and attack. And then David shows up with this, you know, kind of motley crew of, of rebels. Why would they want them? Right. You you see just one more reason to to for David and the men to be rejected. So in verse three, the lords or uh, the ESV has the commanders uh, of these very orderly units. They question Achish's decision. Now, Achish is the king, in case you've forgotten, because we haven't seen him for a little bit. And he, he, they question whether or not David should be included. And Achish protests that he's found no fault in David, he, he, that despite the fact that he acknowledges that David is Saul's servant in this verse, he says... I've got no problem with them. And he um, makes it a point to say that David has deserted to him, to Achish. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you know, hey, he's come over to me. He, he, he's loyal to me now. So we don't have to worry about him. He's fine. You right. guys just need to chill. But it demonstrates a fundamental lack of, of understanding on Achish's part. Because, yes, David had deserted Saul, but he had not deserted God. And the thing is... And we've talked about this several times. The king represented the God. So he assumes that because David is being loyal to him as a king, then David's going to be loyal to the gods. Right. And so he doesn't think that he has anything to to worry about or fear from David. But the, the Philistine commanders, they're not buying it. Uh, verse four, they we're told that they become angry and the, the Hebrews are a little fuzzy, whether they're angry at David or they're angry at Achish. Uh, we just, we don't know, but the point is they're mad. They said, send the man back that he may return to the place which you have assigned him. Now, a little side note here, and this doesn't have much to do with the story, but who assigns people the places they're going to live? It's not just the king, it's the gods. Right. So the, the people are saying, hey, you're king, you're God, you need to, to tell him he needs to get back to this place that you've given him. So we see kind of, we're going to see that they're basically just blowing some smoke up of Akish skirt. And they're, you know, you're the king, you're the God, you need to act like it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't do this because this is, this is not a smart or wise thing to do. 
So they tell him he shall not go down with battle to us unless he become an adversary to us. Now, this is a great example of how the word adversary or Satan in the Hebrew right. is not always referring to the, the Satan. Yeah, the devil, as we would. <laughs> yeah, and so I just wanted to point that out. So um, because you don't often uh, get a chance to, to demonstrate that. So right. we, we know that. David is not going to suddenly turn into Lucifer or, you know, <laughs> whenever he's mm-hmm. fighting. They have something completely different in mind. So they say, for how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? You know, what's he going to do to get back into Saul's good graces? What's he going to do to get his fa- the favor and status back that he had? Would it not be with the heads of our men here? I got to remember, David rose in fame because he beheaded a Philistine. Right. Which was, of course, Goliath. And so they're saying, hey, all he's got to do is behead a few more of us, and Saul's going to take him right back. So we can't trust this guy. Sure. And, and they even cite in verse 5, they, they quote the song. You know, David is, uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands, mm-hmm. which was the song they sang after David had killed Goliath. Right. So the Philistines haven't forgotten who David is or what he's capable of, and they are really concerned that he could flip at any moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> which is pretty, you know, intelligent of them. Uh, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not sure that I would want somebody who just, you know, killed off a member of my family, you know, hanging out with us, you know, camping in the middle of the hills and what happens when everybody goes to sleep at night or... Right. You know, or if you're in the middle of the battle itself and all of a sudden the core of your group, somebody, people start turning on themselves. We always know that's not a good thing. The Bible even talks about that, armies that turn on themselves and kill each other. And so that's what David could have become to them. So verse 6, Achish sends at David home. But, but notice the language here. As the Lord lives. Where's the last time we heard that? Back with... Uh... Yeah, Saul. The previous chapter. Yeah. yeah, uh, Chapter 28, verse 10. Saul said to the witch of Endor, as the Lord lives. So there's our first linguistic connection there. Now, why does the king of the Philistines swear by Yahweh? That that's the the interesting question. because uh, he, he could have sworn by Dagon or Starte. He he did not have to swear by Yahweh. Now we, we have got a couple of different solutions. One is just, this is deference to David, because mm. this is David's God. Um, it could be that the writer was wanting to directly connect us back to chapter 28, that this is a, a literary device that he's using here. It's possible. Uh, he, it could be that the writer did not want to have to um, actually use another God's name any more than he absolutely had to, so this is a good chance to insert it. Okay. Could just be because polytheists really don't care which god they swear by. So, you know, (laughs) we've got a lot of things going on, and I don't think we have a a, a great definitive answer. I think there's a lot of things that could influence it. And it it doesn't always have to be one answer. Sometimes there's multiple things that impact why something is done the way it is. I mean, in my own life, a lot of times I, I will do something based on multiple influences, not just one. You're right. It's allergy season. <laughs> Apparently. So, hope that's all it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a sneeze. We're good. Uh, but yeah, we, we are not even going to entertain any other possibilities today. <laughs> so 
Akish goes on, you have been honest with me. Now, if you go back to chapter 2811, the woman's uh, indoor says, why have you deceived me? Mm -hmm. So we got that flip. Akish continues. And to me, it seems right that you should uh, march out and out. Sorry. You should march out and in with me in the campaign. Literally, it not just seems good. It's good in my sight. Right. What, and so now we're back to 2813, which is what do you see? So we have the sight language. Okay. For I have found nothing wrong Wait. with you. Well, and we also have the tie back to judges. Yes, so. definite, <laughs> definite tie back to judges because everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so what, what if it is he, sorry, Akish continues, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Um, connects us back to 2818. This is what God found wrong with, with Saul. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And also we have that this day. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's being repeated. So we have some very definite ties. Verse 7. So go back and go peacefully that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So 23, um, 22, I'm sorry. 28. I wrote down a 23 for some reason. 28, 22. Now, therefore, you also obey your servants and set and eat so that you may have the strength before. Sorry, I can't even read. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant and eat so that you may have strength before you go on your way. So the, this idea of sending away, this is what the witch has said to Saul. Yeah. You, you're going to, you need to leave. So Achish, just like Saul did in so many previous occasions, he's bowing to the will of the people. Right. And this is one of the huge flaws uh, with Saul. We see it with uh, the Amalekites. We see it again with uh, even in Endor when the servants prevail upon him with the woman to, to eat. Hmm. And we, we are beginning to see that Saul has indeed been a king like every other nation. I mean, he, there's really no difference between how Achish is dealing with David and how Saul dealt with David. Right. There, there's been, it's, it's kind of weirdly parallel. And David has once again been rejected by another nation because notice nobody in Israel stood up to, to protect him. Mm-hmm. Even Jonathan, with all of his help, he, he does it very covertly. He never stands up and says, Dad, you're not just doing the right thing and I'm not going to be a part of this and remove himself from the situation. Right. He, he was still in, in Saul's house. Matter of fact, he's going to die with Saul later because he's going to be on the battlefield with Saul. Why, why wasn't he with David? Why wasn't he you know, trying to help his friend? And so there, there's some really interesting questions that we have of the whole situation. Why was no one in Israel helping David, you know, other than the most of most downcast and, and desperate people. Right. It, it's, but, you know, we go back to human nature. We like security. We like stability. Mm-hmm. We like the status quo and all of these things that, that we tend to do whatever we can to defend, even if that means supporting a corrupt political system. And that's been true through all of human history. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's the way things were in the biblical times. So David and Saul have both crossed over into enemy territory. That's the other thing about this. David has done it by living in uh, Ziklag in the Philistine land. Saul has gone into the, the woman's house, whether she 
was behind the, you know, living in the Philistine land itself, or she was just living in Israel, right? it's still enemy territory. Yeah. Because God wasn't being served there. Both were well received by God's enemies. David's given entire city. Yeah. Uh, Saul gets fed. He he sets on the on the gal's bed. Um you know, so the, the there are some big parallels uh, on how these stories fit together. But the big point is David never fails to be David. Right. He retains his identity through all of this and even the people around him are saying this is who he is. Mm-hmm. The only person who doesn't seem to understand who David is is Achish. And which sets Achish and Saul up at, as the same type of king. Exactly. Because Saul never understood that David was his loyal servant. And Achish seems to think that David is his loyal servant. Right. So I, I, there's a lot of just beautifully and brilliantly written information in this story that only comes out when you really pause to look at it. And the the other thing, too, is Saul forfeits his identity. Right. Remember, he went in disguise. He took his clothes off. He put on something that wasn't his and, and effectively said he was putting away his own kingship. And David never does that, despite the fact he's going into enemy territory. And, and I think that that creates an, an interesting question for us today, because what's revealed about who we are when we venture into in, enemy territory? Right. I mean, are we strangers in a strange land, or are we comfy enough to sit on the bed? I mean, that's, that's a, mm. something I think we need to consider. I mean, I'm not saying that we should never go outside of our good little Christian circles. Matter of fact, I think— But what are we doing there? the question. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of fear sometimes. Um, and there is a right reason to go there. I'm not saying mm-hmm. there's never, you know, because a lot of times you get that, what are you doing there is kind of a condemning statement right. from people sometimes. But it's a, you know, there sometimes are right reasons to go where. Well, we're told to go. You yeah. go out into the highways and the byways and compel them. I mean, all of this stuff that, that is part of what Jesus told us to do, we need to go. But are we still who we are when we're in that place? Can we retain our, our identity? Or do we put it off so we can blend in and look like we belong there? And, you know, is the only thing we're, we're scared of is getting caught for being there. I don't think David's ever afraid of being caught in the Philistine land. I think he, he knows, God knows he's there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I think Saul thought he could, you know, make it okay. <laughs> that God knew well, he was there. And it's also it's also an interesting contrast that when David goes and disguises himself, he gets kicked out. But when he goes there not disguising himself, he gets given a city. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really good point. That could preach. <laughs> I mean, kind of an interesting twist of yeah. uh, that's events, I guess. Where where Saul has to be disguised in order to, to receive a meal. Ooh, that yeah, that's something I could play with for a few days. <laughs> so, but we we won't do that on air. Uh, verse eight. Then David said uh, to Achish, "But what have I done? What have you found in in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king?" Hey, gotta love David. He's gotta be one of the most brazen people. Ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, who little of me? What's wrong with me? I've not done anything wrong. You know, it, 
you know and I know that David is just biding his time until he can get back to Israel. And once he does, he's going to do what a king is supposed to do, which is attack the Philistines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet he has the gall to stand here in front of Achish. Yeah, because wasn't he lying about where he was raiding in previous chapters? Yes, absolutely. And he was basically attacking people that Achish might have considered and very likely could have considered to be allies. And And then saying he was attacking Judah Judah and and the Kenites. And he's like, and and then bringing all the spoils that he had collected from these raids back to Achish and giving him, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is like the worst plot uh, of those movies. I mean, there's, I can't think of a specific one, but I know I've seen them where, you know, I cooked you a dinner and, oh, oh, Basic instinct. Here's your here's your bunny rabbit. You know, it's basically what he's done to Akish is I've taken your pets and served them up to you, and you enjoyed it. So it, it's really David's devious, and he is merciless. Yeah. And so oh, yeah, he's 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 uh he's definitely a crafty one. Oh yeah, and he he seems to say that Israel's his enemy because Israel is Akish's uh enemy and right. you know he he's really playing with this and you know what what david is trying to do here we don't know i mean one proposal is this okay he's going to go out with akish they're going to get in the heat of the battle and then he's going to turn on akish and he's going to win this victory for israel the problem is we don't know because it never gets a chance to happen right it, it's completely cut off but the this is really important because we already know Saul's in the Valley of Jezreel. Mm-hmm. We found that in uh, chapter 28. And we also, I mean, the other thing we see here is David's not stupid enough to just push his luck and be like, no, I have to go with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he did back off. And it's a good thing he did because now when Saul does get killed in the battle. It was not David. David had absolutely nothing to do with it. And there's going to be no no doubt that Saul's death is occurring because God decreed it, not because David made it happen. Right. And it wasn't even Philistines who might be working on behalf of David, trying to help their friend David. This is something completely out of his control. So very important that we recognize that David's not a part of this. And that's one of the reasons why the writer of Samuel put this, this story in here, because we have to defend the reason for the Davidic monarchy and for Saul being removed from office. Mm-hmm. Um, so verse nine, it opens with an Achish answered David and said, I know you were as blameless in my sight as an angel of the Lord. Uh, that's literally an angel, uh, angel of God literally an angel of Elohim, not the angel of the Lord. Right. And which angels he was referring to, who knows? Uh, it's, it's a lot of speculation. Every culture had angels. They served their gods. They, they, um, the, at this time, they, they attribute the origin of the monarchy to the, to the fallen angels, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Israel. So, that not Israel's monarchy, but in Israel they attribute the other monarchies to the fallen angels. Right. So we don't know who Achish is referring to. He seems to have a lot of understanding of uh, Jewish religion and culture in the way he speaks, 
which isn't really all that far-fetched because in this point in time, you remember, Samson went back and forth between right. the Philistine towns and the Israelite towns, and nobody seemed to care. And remember, Judah actually went out to Samson when he started causing problems and said, you know, hey, you're making trouble for us. You need to quit. So the, the, two, the two nations didn't have a real strong border or boundary between them. Mm-hmm. There was actually times when they, they, they may not have been best friends, but they at least tolerated each other. Yeah. And usually it was when the Philistines were feeling confident enough to enslave Israel. So verse 9. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go out with us to battle. So now, Brueggemann makes a really interesting uh, suggestion here. And he suggests that what we hear from Achish actually foreshadows Jesus' um, trial before Pilate. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had not put that together. So three times Achish acquits David of all charges that are raised against him by the lords. He says, I find no fault in you. I found nothing wrong in you. You are blameless. So Achish is saying some really great things about David. Now, if you go to Luke 24.4, Pilate, I find no guilt in this man. 24.14, I do not find this man guilty. 24.15, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Also, we find that repeated in John 1838, 194, and 196. So I won't read those. But so we have that three times he's innocent. There's no guilt. Right. So that's where Brueggemann finds that. And I thought that was really an interesting point. And um, Brueggemann has done some really great work on David and yeah. Saul. So worth reading. Verse 10. Now when you they now then rise early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So verse 11, David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So we total separation. And like I said, David's removed from the war. He's mm-hmm. not part mm-hmm. of it. And David will return to, to um, Ziklag. And this is a city that Achish had given him, but he's not going to, to remain there long, as a matter of fact. Everything that conspires over the next little bit of our story is going to make sure that David is over a hundred miles away from where Saul's killed. So he's right. not just removed, he's very way far removed. removed. <laughs> so chapter twenty hundred miles is a pretty good distance even in today's travel. Yeah, and to know that you had to travel it by foot. I right. mean that so nobody can make the mistake that, oh, look, David went back on everything he'd said before when he had said he wouldn't kill Saul. Or, oh, look, David really was trying to kill Saul. And we, we do see that he is truly blameless. There mm-hmm. is no guilt in him. The king just didn't realize, Achish didn't realize how blameless David was or what he really was blameless of. Right. And, and so it, the charges that the men brought against David were absolutely on point. Mm-hmm. But the the real evil that David was capable of, it, that's the thing he didn't do. Right. So that that chapter didn't take long, which is a nice little change of pace. <laughs> but you see why it didn't take long was because it built on that chapter twenty eight. Sure. Sure. And and I, I love the fact that it does force us to ask those questions of who are you and what does it reveal about you when you go into enemy territory. So um, I, I, I don't think you would get that question if you didn't have those two stories side by side. Right. So we're, we're in chapter 30 now. Um, 
major like I feel like we're just flying. <laughs> so that's good. We're <laughs> covering ground. Good stuff still. We're, that, but I don't feel like we've left out anything important. No, no. And, and when you do have something like that, that you can hit with a lot of background work you've done in other areas, it just makes it so much easier. And this is part of the reason why if you know know your Bible well, it's amazing how many times the work you put in on this passage makes this passage just like click into place immediately. Yeah. So in, in chapter 30, we, we open up with David and his men getting back to Ziklag. Uh, it takes them a three-day journey, so it's interesting. We have a three-day time span that usually is significant in the Bible and says, you know, something important is going to happen. And we find out that the Amalekites have burned the city, and they've taken anyone who's been left behind as captives, and we're specifically told no one is killed. So we, David and his men get back. Everyone's gone. And verse, verse three reiterates that, you know, the town's been burned and the, the wives, the sons and the daughters, they're, they're now captives. And the, the writer really wants you to understand the city's been destroyed. Everything is gone and everyone is gone. This is not um, a minor skirmish, the skirmish. This is David's and his men. Everything of value has been taken from them. And you can only imagine, unless you've been through something like a house fire or, or you know, tornado or, or, or something like this, and it's not just your house, it's your neighborhood's been knocked out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this would have been devastating. So verse four, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I mean, these are the fiercest warriors in the land. Mm -hmm. the, these are the guys that have been called terrorists. and they aren't just moved to tears. I mean, they're gutted and they're, they're wailing and to the point that they don't have any strength uh, left. And I think the other thing we need to remember in this point in time, being taken as a captive is not better than being killed. Right. We, we focus so much on the preservation of life so often that we, we forget that there are things worse than dying. Right. And matter of fact, in, in, um, early days here in America, if a woman was taken captive by the Native Americans, the family went on mission to find her, not to bring her back, but to kill her, that she would not be rescued. And I have a very good suspicion, and I have not been able to find anything to, to corroborate this, but the, the, um, that this would be a similar mindset in this day and age. Because if a woman's been used as a sex slave, and now we have problems with if she has any children, mm -hmm. is, you know, who's the father? What right do they have? And, you know, not to mention that she'd been traumatized and there, you know, there wasn't a lot of help and support for women who had been through that kind of thing. Right. So these men to, to weep like this would have been completely appropriate. And, uh, you know, we're going to find out later that Saul is so scared of being taken captive that, He's going to kill himself. So being taken captive is not something that we should go. Oh, fine. They're at least at least they're at least they're alive. No, it, it's horrifying. And we're told in verse five that that David's two wives are taken. So you know David's not unaffected by this tragedy. It, right. This this strikes home to him, and and he really is sharing in the suffering of his people. And I think that's really important because. Saul never really seems to share in what's going on with the people around him. It's mm -hmm. all about what's going on in it's impacting him. 
Right. And matter of fact, if you go back and look at, you know, whenever he was being plagued by that evil spirit from the Lord, it was his men who said, hey, let's find somebody to help our king. Let's figure out a way to take care of him. This isn't, you don't see that situation with David until right up to the very end of his life when he becomes an old man. David is worried about taking care of his people. So we have that reversal. So verse six, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So I think it's interesting we have the bitter of soul mm-hmm. uh, stuff back in here, right? Right. Um, I also think it's interesting in my ESV, I have a little footnote that says, um, compare, yeah, I was, I'll compare, I'm sorry. I've mixed up my footnotes. It's not as interesting. So go ahead. <laughs> well, we know that the, the men who arrived, they were described as bitter of soul. Right. And, and it, even though it's not the exact same words as Hannah used uh, in the opening of First Samuel, I think it's very similar. Uh, it's got the similar kind of idea and connotation. But we also have that connection right back to Ruth, where Naomi was bitter. So, you know, we, we keep being reminded of the women. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we're reminded of the women that were a part of David's heritage. Right. So, and now it is interesting to note, David is distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. Uh, he, he's up, I'd be a little distressed too. Right? Because this is not the fun stoning. This is, no. this is the painful, bloody kind. Um, you know, he's upset when his wives are, are, are taken, but he becomes distressed when his life is threatened. And the word is often used in a military situation in a kind of dire straits uh, to be put in, in straits, to be, to be um, constrained. Okay. And so you're kind of running out of options. He, he doesn't know what to do. And so he he's kind of trapped by the situation and he didn't feel trapped when his wives were, were taken. I think David being the military guy, he was, he knew exactly what he was going to do and what his response was. But what do you do when the people who've done nothing but loved you and supported you and praised you this whole time suddenly turn on you? And that's what devastates David. Yeah. And you know, I think sometimes we forget that the, these men, they had left behind everything to be with them. Now, they may not have had, I'm hearing an opera in the background. Sorry, yeah, my daughter's <laughs> singing. I don't know what's going on. She's happy. But I mean, they had left everything behind. Now, how much they had to leave behind is a good question. But they had left their homes. They had come into enemy territory with David. They were living in a land where God, quote unquote, didn't live. Well, okay. They, yeah, sure. They left a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. but it also, you know, when we go back to, to 222, um, okay. doesn't it say the people, all the people who were in debt and without were the ones yeah. who came to David? So, I mean, we kind of have this thing right here, you know, they're, they're following David. They're, they're, they're with him because they hey, don't have anything. Now we, now we're getting stuff and it's that whole like. 
We'll, we'll, we'll serve you as long as things are going well, business. I think there's an element in probably some of those people, and we're going to see kind of the dividing line between the two types of followers that David has, mm-hmm. and it's going to be ve- made very clear. But, I mean, at the same time, these guys trust him enough to, to go into this foreign place, to bring their families with them, mm-hmm. and they are so loyal to him. I mean, they could have easily gone to Akish and say, hey, do you want to know what's really going on? For my own city, I'll tell you what David's really doing. Right. You know? So they were loyal enough to keep that secret. And I mean, this is 600 men keeping a secret. And now they're, they're saying, hey, we're, we're going to kill you. And, you know, grumbling against leadership, that's not something that's new to Israel. I right. Mean, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> right. You know, Exodus 15, uh, 20 through 27, this, the place of bitter water, mm-hmm. Mara, the bitter soul. So we got this l- nice little connection here. The people grumbled against Moses. And then in chapter 16, they, they start grumbling again, no food, no mm-hmm. meat. And so then we get the manna and the quail. And so David is participating in what is Israel, or you know, he might be the victim of Israel's favorite pastime, <laughs> which is grumbling against leadership. And you know, the, the thing is that the writer even tries to explain why it's different for David than it is for the men, because he says that they are bitter over the fate of their sons and daughters. Now, at this point, David, as far as we know, does not have any children. Right. Um, and so he did lose his, his wives. And the rabbis see this as one way that the men saw themselves as separate and distinct from David. And so they had more right to be upset because David just lost wives, big whoop. Right. But losing your kids, that's even horrible. Um, but Well, and also the fact the city was taken away because David was off trying to pursue strategies and didn't leave anyone to protect the city. Exactly. That, that's the big thing I think is going on. I mean, the families were left without any kind of defenses because it says the 600 men went and we still don't know what David's plans were. I mean, was he going to fight alongside Akish? We don't know. Was he going to turn on Akish during the battle? We kind of hope that was what he was planning to do. But again, we're never told. And sure. you, you have to wonder what did his men know what his plan was? Did or were they just out there going? This is what David said to do. Let's do it. So that you had to trust him and follow. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a make or break moment for David in how he handles the way the men are responding, and you know how he responds to their complaints. I mean, Saul would have just freaked out and done something to yield to pre- peer pressure. This is what he's done every time in the past, right? And. If he didn't yield to peer pressure in some way, he would lash out at anyone that dared to oppose him, like the priest of Nob. And David does neither. He, he strengthens himself in the Lord, and it should be noted, his God. Yeah. He, you know, the writer makes it very clear. And finally, after three chapters of David not mentioning God, David not appealing for, to God, David's back. David is finally becoming the David we, we know him to be, who he was when he arrived in Saul's court, yeah. and the David that was going to be celebrated as king. And now we can be confident that David can move forward as the appropriate leader for God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Before this, I mean, we were all over the place with him. What's this guy doing? 
where is this great prayer warrior? Where is this wonderful psalmist? We haven't covered a psalm in weeks, if not I mean, months, maybe, because David hasn't written any for us. Right. <laughs> and he's been busy. Yeah. And he he has discovered something so incredibly radical that I don't even think we recognize how radical it is. He's discovered God is present even in the land of the Philistines. Right. And he is he's moving on that. He's he's acting in that knowledge. And this would have been just an insane discovery for anyone at that time to see that their God could be outside the geographic boundaries that had been established. And so, you know, he hasn't been condemned to worship other gods, like he had said whenever he faced uh, Saul before. And so the, to find out that Saul, that God is still with him mm-hmm. would have been just profound. Now, J.G. Baldwin has suggested that um, this is when Psalms 25 has, was written. And since we haven't talked about any Psalms, um, there's, you know, there's some resistance to her idea there. But because we haven't done any psalms in a while, and we got this proposal, and I think it's time to do another psalm, when we come back, we will be doing Psalms 25, because, you know, why not? I want to. Okay. So, <laughs> but verse 7, um, David said to Abathar the priest, so the priest is with him, son of Ahimelech, Abimelech, yeah, Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought David the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. Let me get that in proper order. So Abathar's reintroduced. Uh, the last time we saw him was back with the Battle of Keilah, and we're reminded why he's here in Ziklag. I mean, his father was Himelech, the priest that gave David the showbread, the priest that gave David Goliath's sword, mm-hmm. and the priest that Saul killed for helping David. And Abathar, he's lived through this nightmare before. This is not the first time he, he's found his family killed, mm-hmm. taken captive. I mean, this is not, this is nothing new for this man. Uh, and I, I like the fact he's included here because the people, the masses, they're just kind of faceless. I mean, we don't really have any point of connection with them. We can kind of see, you know, the mass chaos. and mm-hmm. I, But Abathar, I think he kind of drives home that, this was happening to real people. I mean, he's been with David since almost the very beginning. Uh, he was there with David and Kila. Uh, he w- has been living in the land of the Philistines, and we kind of get this this sense of him making the, this whole whole journey with David. And I, for me, he made it very accessible. Mm-hmm. He he moved the story out of being okay. So everybody's gone, and the men are crying. Now we had this individual. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that kind of that point of entry character that that the that's supposed to be the person that you the reader identifies with, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Yeah, well, and and it kind of allows us to to step aside or kind of see past David. I mean, David's always such an overwhelming figure in the in the stories that sometimes it's hard to see past him. And now we we can do that for a moment, and we can see how David's actions have, you know, they have consequences and they aren't just consequences for himself, but what, what he's really asking of his men. And I mean, what he's asking from Abathar is insane. The fact that this guy has to to suffer through the loss of his family twice over 
I mean, it, it you can only imagine. Oh yeah, well, and and, and I mean, but I mean that's just kind of unfortunately that's what's going to happen during a time of crazy civil war. Yeah, which is exactly what this has been. It's kind of been a low key civil war that. Um, Yes, the, the nation isn't openly fighting itself, but they, they're fighting this little faction within it mm-hmm. that, and, but we're also, we're also going to see how, how David's response to this crisis is so different than Saul's. Because Saul, Saul never goes, oh, oh you, your family has been killed? I'm, I'm sorry, let me, you know, he, he doesn't have any compassion. And so we get to see how David is going to to respond. But then we also had this other thing going on with the ephod because last time we saw it was in Keilah. Mm-hmm. And at that point, David didn't seem to need it. He, he talked to God. God talked to him. The men went, wait a minute. Did you really hear from God? We're going to need some proof. And mm-hmm. that's when he called Abathar and said, hey, let's follow the proper protocols and let's demonstrate for the people that I actually do hear from God because this is the way things are. Sure. And, and what I see in this story is in this moment, David's like, they're going to need more than just me saying it. I, they're going to have bigger needs than just going. Well, I mean, I would assume so, but I mean, the people are ready to stone him. They're right. going to need more than just the word of someone that they're already ready to kill. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's, that's the thing. David didn't try to go, well, they should just trust me. They should just have faith in what I said, which you can see Saul kind of having mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. reaction. David says, you know, we're going to do this the right way. Uh, and so he, well, I can see Saul having more of the reaction. Well, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm just going to kill you. Yeah, that's... exactly. I mean, and the thing is, Saul doesn't have any empathy and he doesn't have any compassion. And David is capable of that. So verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered it, pursue for you. I mean, God to answer David is what this is saying. Pursue for you shall surely overtake and, sure, and shall surely rescue. So the response is not in keeping with the typical response that one would expect from the ephod or the Urim and Thummim. Uh, typically, whenever you ask, the questions and you'll you can go back and there's always two questions that are asked and the first question is answered uh you never get an answer to the second one but this time not only is the first question answered the second question is answered and the implied third question is answered so not only is david confirmed as actually being able to hear from god and god blessing this endeavor it's god putting kind of an extra stamp of approval by Mm -hmm, giving mm -hmm. that third response and so. David is more of a king and a leader than the people were giving him credit for. Um, you know, and you also got that great contrast with Saul, who's been completely shut off from God and God's not talking to. And here's God talking over and above what David even re- asked and re- being even more yeah. responsive than he had expected. And you I mean, really, God's almost being lavish with David compared to the total drought that Saul's facing. Right. So verse uh, nine, we're, we're told that David sets out with the 600 men and they get to the brook of Bezor. Um, it's at this point that he leaves 200 of the men uh, behind. So basically about 16 miles, because we aren't sure exactly where Ziklag is, but we kind of have a general idea. Uh, 200 men drop out. We're going to talk about why that's important in a little bit. 
but the Bezor, it's a brook that's located in the southern part of Judah, and it runs along the deepest, most steep ravine, and it, it's crazy to cross. You can okay. go see it today. So you kind of see why this might, might be... Might be a little tired. Well, yeah, because they'd been... I mean, they had just been with uh, Achish's army. They had to march all the way back to Ziklag. They get there. Everything's gone. They've been emotionally and mentally traumatized. They've wept until they can't weep anymore. Whenever I've done that, I just want to pass out. Forget getting up sure. and walking another 16 miles. That's probably not happening. Um, so you, you kind of see why they might be a little exhausted. So first, I was about to say, I'm not walking 16 miles on a good day, but I actually do that <laughs> yeah, almost every day at work right. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you really had to be motivated to to even think and to have hope that you're going to catch up with these guys in time to rescue your family. And so, you know, it would be really easy just to fall prey to self-pity in this moment. But verse 10, David pursued and he and 400 men, 200 men stayed behind. Those were who, who were too, exhaust, too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. So, um... You know, I had a little notes on that, but we already covered it. So the rabbis say there's another reason why these 200 dropped out. Now, if you remember back in the story, uh, David began with 400 men. Okay. And it wasn't until after the victory at Keilah that he had another 200 men added to him. So that's where we go from four to six. And they, the people claim that these 200 that, that joined David after the victory, this, you know, this moment, this high of, oh, look at what mm -hmm. David can mm -hmm. accomplish at Keilah. These were the two that stayed behind at Bezor because, you know, they didn't have the history with David. They right. didn't go through all that hardship and, and they only joined him when things were, were going good. And they, you know, they probably assumed that Every battle would be like Kila. Everything would be great and wonderful. And they, they didn't understand that in order to be successful in David's economy, you have to do what David did. Right. And that's strengthen yourself in the Lord. And the rabbis claim that these 200 failed to do this where the 400 did. Now, you know, we're not told that this was going on. But at the same time, interesting there, thought. Yeah, well, there's got to there's got to be some reason why these four hundred said no, we're not stopping, and they they continue to press through. And there's got to be some reason why two hundred went. I'm going to give up on my family. I, I I'm not even going to try. Yeah. And so there's you, that's the division we see in the men. What kind of men do David have? Does he have following him? You know, are, are they great warriors? Are they not? Are they people with great faith? Are they not? I, we're starting to see that David is attracting both, you know, people who can support him and follow him right into the you know, mouth of hell mm -hmm. and people who are saying, no, I, I can only be with you when things are going right. Right. So and I think every leader is probably going to um, encounter those situations. So then the story kind of, this is interesting because in verse 11a, it says they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And so this is where we start to get some revelation about what's going on. And it, it's, to me, this is where it got, got interesting. And they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink. So it's odd. Okay. The, 
these 400 guys are chasing after the Amalekites who have their family. And they're going to stop. See that, you know, they see this guy, an Egyptian, not even an Israelite, not a Canaanite, nobody that they're friends with. And they say, oh, he's, he's sick. He's dying. We need to stop and we need to take care of him. Here, mm-hmm, let's, mm-hmm. let's feed him. Let's get him. So weird that they would do this and that they would take time because you would think they would just want to keep moving. And th- they aren't stopping to set up tents and camps along the way. They are chasing with everything they've got in them. Right. Except for the 200, you know, back at Bezor. And so verse 12, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for these three days and three nights. So not only is the Egyptian fed, he's fed the best of what the soldiers have to offer. And He's keeping company with the king. I mean, he, he is astray. They found alongside the road, and they, he's keeping company with the, with the future king of Israel. Mm-hmm. Nothing in this is normal. Right. And I mean, I think sometimes because we read it in the Bible, it's like, oh, okay, so that's what happened. No, really stop and think about this. And he hasn't eaten for th- three days and three nights. So we got that repetition of three so david and his men arrive three days and then this guy three days and three nights so now we know that the time frames right when he was left behind he was left behind when ziklag was was attacked he he's been in this field right ever since the melkites made off with the, the family right so verse 13, and David said, to whom do you belong? So David knows that he belongs to someone. He, he knows that he's a slave. And where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. So the Amalekite master says his servant, his slave is sick. Mm-hmm. Go. You know, I don't, I'm done with you. Yeah. So we, we've got this very deliberate contrast being set up where David, who, who's in pursuit to rescue his family, stops to feed and give this guy some water, some raisins. It, you know, he, he's going to take care of the guy on the side of the road where the Amalekites are like, I can't even be bothered to take care of a slave who was probably pretty much part of his household there right. every day. Right. And so now you, you see the difference between... The, the two of them, David will deliberately take care of somebody he knows is a slave where an Amalekite can't be bothered. So David's, you know, his kindness, if you just want to be very utilitarian and bare bones about the situation as it is at this point in time, his kindness is unexpected, but it's also unnecessary. This is over and above anything he would have to do. And if, you know, if David wanted information, why not just beat it out of him? Right. That's, <laughs> that would have been standard operating procedure. Uh, this guy probably wouldn't have refused to give David any information he needed for just the water. Why do we need figs and raisin cakes? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything about this has been showing us that David, he's, he's different. Yeah. And, well, and it's actually kind of interesting. The, uh, I read this article, and I can't remember what it was called, but... It basically uh, talked about how the spread of Christianity happened largely because of the way that Christians treated the sick. Mm-hmm. And yes. 
So we kind of have this this foreshadowing of of the church moving mm-hmm. forward, because in the early days, I mean, there are a, there's a lot of diseases that people would get. Like, I mean, like the, like the flu used mm-hmm. to be considered terrible because people didn't want to be around sick people, and so yeah. just not having someone to bring you food and water that was a death sentence oh yeah if you could just get food and water brought to you during some of the these diseases and viruses that Mm -hmm. were going on you you had a much higher survival rate and so when people were sick they started taking them to the christians who would take care of these people and because of that the faith grew um, because they really saw that hey these christians actually do care about people so i I think that's an interesting parallel that i hadn't i didn't put that together when I was reading it at first, but uh, well, I yeah. see your point there. I, and I think that we don't think of David being this kind and this right. generous. And I, I think it's also, I'm not going to take time to go into the parallels, but I think it's pretty easy to, to think about the, the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, very much, uh, we see this expectation that when you're in God's kingdom, that you take care of people, and we're going to get some more into that and what that looks like, because the, the story has a lot to teach us. But the... And, the first word of the next verse, and this is what I find to be so amazing, should have put this guy's life in danger. Because verse 14 says, we had made a great raid against the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against Negev, Caleb, uh, the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. We, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he's saying, I was part of it. Right. And so the fact that David just didn't hack off his head right then and there is kind of astounding because I mean, he's he's just admitted that he's been a part of this destruction that endangered David's life. I have a question. Okay. Are those locations the ones that David lied about raiding? Two of them are. Because I was like, okay, that might be why <laughs> the, there was the feasible, the plausible lie that mm-hmm. uh, the, the Philistine king believed. Okay. This and, yes, these are now the Cherethites is a synonym for the Philistines, and I'm not going to go into all the linguistic reasons why okay. we know this is true. Just trust me on that one, or don't look it up. Whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to support it here. But yeah, Judah and the Negev of Caleb, which is the Canaanites, right? These are the, exactly the same places that David had claimed to attack in chapter 27. Sure. So absolutely, and you know, but we know that during this time, who was David actually? attacking he's attacking the amalekites is or is among some of those that he was attacking right and so this has led people to logically conclude that this raid against ziklag was retaliation the problem is how did the amalekites know that it was david attacking the people because david killed everyone so no one would know that it was him mm-hmm and evidently, even Akish hadn't figured out that this is David actually making these raids at this point. Sure. He thinks sure. David's telling the truth. Uh, so, yes, it seems rational that this could be a retaliatory act, but at the same time, you still we have that problem. And so, you know, either David's plan has failed and somebody leaked the information, but who's going to do that? Because Everybody knows you don't want the Amalekites to have any excuse to come at you. Sure. And the, the other problem is it hinges on the idea that the Amalekites needed to be provoked to make such an attack. Yep. And we know that's not true. We, actually, what we know to be even more true is Ziklag is like the perfect target for the Amalekites because who did they attack? 
the defenseless, the mm-hmm, weak, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the ones who can't defend themselves. I mean, this is their favorite kind of target, and it has been ever since we first met them. Yeah. yeah. And so the fact that, that they're doing this, we, we shouldn't be shouldn't be shocked and then you know you've got the this slave who's been cast out because he's sick you know how much more proof do you need the amalekites are awful awful people and so you know the last time that we had the comparison of a amalekite king with the king of israel it didn't go so well mm-hmm. and which was when david no sorry when saul brought agag back to uh, israel with him Right. And so you're not a great time. Now the writer has given us this wonderful comparison with David and the Amalekites and yep. David's coming out looking so much better. And David is doing the work that a king should be about. And he is making sure that he's, he's protecting the weak and he's going after those who have been taken, but he is also he's extending this grace and kindness to someone who doesn't even deserve it. Someone who has actively wronged him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, the idea too, that he's going after the Amalekites. This is something God said, when you get in your land, when you get in your country, when you've made sure everybody's where they're supposed to be in Canaan, your first task is you're supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. And this is the work of a King that David's about now. Right. And so while Saul is busy waiting for the Philistines to, to uh, attack, and he's freaking out, and he's over-talking to a witch who belongs to the opposite kingdom, David's living out the principles of God's kingdom in the worst of circumstances. So I, it, it's the, the contrast that the writer's been playing with us these last few chapters, I, they just make me happy. Yeah, no, it <laughs> so. makes a lot of sense, and it, it, it really shows a lot of what's going on there. So I... I think that's good. I, I think it's a good place to wrap for yeah. this week. Uh, we've got more in a few minutes for us and uh, <laughs> next week for you guys. Yeah. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. It's been a, a fun uh, fun little trip through this book. We're almost wrapped up. Uh, I think our next week we're going to wrap up First Samuel. Uh, no, we still got a little longer to okay. do, but yeah, we're getting well, close. We're, get, we're very close on the end. So yeah, um, it's kind of weird. We've been in First Samuel for a very long time. I'm not even sure how long, but it's been a <laughs> while. Was wondering about that i'm like but you know there's so much that you just aren't going to see if you don't slow it down yeah if you don't spend the time there you're not going to get it and i think it's definitely worth spending the time and breaking a lot of these stories Mm -hmm. down and going okay so we don't have to jump through a bunch of crazy hoops to justify the things that happen in the bible right we can accept what it says wow i mean (laughs) like really when you get down to it it's like okay yeah that's a lot less controversial than everyone should think it and that's the huge thing because when you read these stories and you if you've listened to a lot of critiques because i went through a big stage where i was really questioning christianity uh won't say go too far into the story but you know this is years ago and i was reading a lot of the critiques and i was reading what people had to say and you know if you just listen to those voices all of a sudden you feel like the bible isn't trustworthy but then when you actually keep pushing in Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then it's like how can you not trust this book? And it tells you the unvarnished truth. I mean, it's not giving me something that's pretty and, oh, here, let me just make you feel good with what I say and pat you on the top of the mm-hmm, head. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, hey, humanity's really messed up. Yep. 
And the good news is, despite this, God loves us and God can use us. And God, I hate that phrase, sorry. God wants us to participate in his plans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, no, I love it. It's great. So, it's great. Yeah. So, well, everyone, uh, hopefully, all of our stuff made a little bit of sense. And uh, <laughs> if you want to try to be part of the conversation, <laughs> try to be. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's what I, that's the best I do. Um, but. If you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on Raven Creek SC, Raven Creek SC.com uh, is our website. Uh, SC is on all the social media. You can find us and we'll be happy to see you there. Yeah. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next